0: For more information, visit multrimobile.com.
1: Welcome to the Huntivore podcast, powered by Sportsman's Empire where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 129 from Field to Plate with Jeremy Doty. On this episode of Hunt of Ore, Nick sits down with Jeremiah Doty, the man behind From Field to Plate. Jeremiah and Nick have very similar views on wild game and life, even though they are on opposite sides of the country. Jeremiah shares stories from the field and his passions around food. This is an absolute listen of an episode as we prepare for our upcoming seasons. Get ready to be fired up on this episode of Huntivore. Well, hey folks, beautiful afternoon here in Michigan, I tell you what, it is—we're starting to get the heat. It's starting to feel a little bit like California. We we got dry heat. We're in the 90s now, and hasn't rained in well over—I don't want to say quite a month, but we're at like three weeks or so. We had a little spit of rain, maybe. It's because I was destined to talk to a Californian today. I am on the horn here with Jeremiah Doty out of Southern California, Jeremiah. Thanks for uh jumping on. How are things in your neck of the woods? Good, but I like how you say California weather. so we've been we haven't
2: had sun since like March. It's been like May gloom, June gloom. March gloom, April gloom. Uh, Today is the first day we actually have sun, but it's still sitting around like 69 degrees. So I am ready for
1: summer to come. I'm ready for heat. Yeah. We need to, something has happened. Everything, I think it it all stems from 2020. More craziness has happened and Michigan has become California and California is now eating the Michigan weather. I want my below 70s back. Like I, I had enough of this heat. I'm ready to move back to uh, some cooler temperatures.
2: Yeah, and I'm I'm ready for heat. Like, I'm still wearing sandals in the 60 degree weather, but throwing on a sweatshirt. You know, like (laughs) I mean, I know you guys 60 degree weather for you when in in the middle of you know after winter, you're like okay, but for us, that's like that's like freezing cold when it's 50 and 60 degrees outside. You
1: know? Absolutely, absolutely. We we uh, we feel for you. We wish to have it back because yeah, now we get here and we're like we don't we don't know what to do. I have all these sweatshirts and I can't wear them. I have like four T-shirts, so I just gotta keep cycling through. But uh, yeah, you got you got cold weather out there. I thought great spot for us to touch off a little bit. Jeremiah, is how were your seasons this past year? I know in in California things work a little different. You you do like there's less over the counter opportunities, and you have end up having to play the tag game. But there's still a lot of opportunities to get over the counter. You just have to be strategic on where you go. Am I right?
2: Yeah. So the way our state works is we've it's broken up into a lot of, like the western states, we're broken up into different zones, different hunt areas, zones, right? Some states will call it areas. Some Ours calls it zones. So we'll have like A zone, B zone, whatever, right? So we have an AO, which is an archery only, and that's pretty much over the counter. You can go in and get it, and you can hunt anywhere that's in with that AO zone. Then you have like an A tag, which A tag covers almost all of the state, um, which you can put in for, and that's just going to public land. You can go shoot your one deer on that AO. Uh, then there's a B or the A zone. Then then there's a B zone, which kind of goes up towards the northern one. Um, but then there's individual zones within that that is a draw system. So you'll have like the D zones, the, the other A zones. You'll have X zones, which those are your prime, like, you put in and put in and put in and try to get an X zone because that's where your big giant mule deer are up in the, up in the mountains, up near Tahoe mammoth. You're going to get big, big, big mule deer coming in. Uh, But me, I draw in the South uh, down in the desert and I'm shooting the desert mule deer coming in off of Mexico. So we've still got big mule deer coming in out of Mexico. And that's primarily what I go for. I know how to hunt the deserts. I'm a flatlander. You know, I live at 30, you know, feet above sea level and so going up to that 10,000 foot to go track mule deer is fun but I just can't breathe so I'd rather go hike around the deserts and and really try to outsmart these deer rather than
1: you know sitting behind a tree so you've you've spoken a lot about antelope and I know you've got a a food allergy and Mm -hmm. beef is no longer good for you was there some was whitetail also becoming a problem for you at that one point but I knew that antelope was a a thing that you could safely safely eat. It's funny you say that. I just finished this guy, and I'm just about ready to put him up. so all oh, beautiful.
2: Um, yeah, it's really a to me. skull mount there of a, of a pronghorn. Uh, no, all, all wild game is, is on the table for me. Uh, antelope was just the first of the wild game that I ever went, like large game I ever hunted. Uh, been a bird hunter my whole life, and so antelope was that first introductory you know, animal to me. A lot of guys like you in Michigan and stuff, right? Like you're used to going out chasing those whitetails as soon as the air starts to get cold and school starts to start again and you're all getting off the day to go open or, you know, deer. For us, you know, deer season opens here July fourteenth in Southern California for archery. So you can go chase deer, the only problem is hundred and ten degrees outside. And you try to tell me can one deer <laughs> Yeah, you try to tell me one deer that's out eating in the middle of the day. No, they're all you know, they're walking in the middle of the night when it's eighty degrees. And so um, it was never really that option, but when the beef allergy came into play, um, that's where the antelope did because Wyoming, it's just so cheap it, at the time, I think it was like 36 bucks for an, for, uh, a tag and license in Wyoming. It's you, you can't beat that. You can go get four, you know, back in the day, you used to be able to get four doe tags. And so you can go do four doe tags for the price of still cheaper than trying to get a buck. And so that's really where that passion for pronghorn started was. 10 years ago, um, chasing, you know, pulling up to the plains of Wyoming and just seeing herds and herds and say, how do I close a three mile gap on an animal that can see three and a half miles? And that's, you know, so antelope to me, that is just was the beginning of it. And that's why it's one of my absolute favorites because it's just like, you're you know, it's your first, right? It's your first big, your first big game, your first struggle, your first taste of big wild game meat. That's not, you know, that's cooked properly. And so, yeah, that's that's the fun for me of antelope.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, just like you said, the whitetail is king in a lot of people's books here uh, out east and you know, especially here in Michigan. It's plentiful. It's you know, it's right out your back door, but it's what it's what we cut our teeth on. It's what we grew up on and we know them inside and out. And so, yeah, it's as much fun as it is to go and chase other species. And I'm, I'm finally getting that chance to be able to branch out and, you know, go different places, chase after different critters. I, I still think that whitetail will continue and always be my number one on my list. You know, you know two, three, and four, it's going to kind of cycle through as far as how my mood is swinging. But for the most part, you're right. Like your first is one that's going to stick at the top of that list
2: yeah but also, like there's something magical about hunting an animal that you understand its psyche, right? Like like, I know how antelope are going to work now, like i i I know how their brains work. I know where they're going to, you know, unlike whitetail mule you know mule deer, elk, cattle, for that fact, um, when the sun starts to set, antelope lay down and they're there all night long. Just like a lot of the other big sheep that you're going to find, the goats you're going to find, they don't want to walk in the middle of the night, right? Their biggest asset is their eyes. You know, they've got huge eye sockets, and they've got this almost 360-degree view where they can they can look on their eyes. And so, taking away their natural, you know, defense mechanism, they usually huddle down, hurt. You know, so you're you're almost in a sense hunting antelope like you're hunting turkey, where you're you're, you're putting them to roost. And then you're coming back in the morning to try to figure out, did they fly off the roost early or are they still going to be right in that one spot? And so, you know, we've taken out, I've taken out, I can't tell you how many brand new hunters to, to antelope. We took out this one dude from my church. He was in his late eighties, all his, you know, had cancer. His wife passed away and he really wanted to hunt antelope. And so we got him tagged th- through the draw. And I remember we took him out the night before we put down a whole herd. There's like 40, 50 antelope. And that morning we crawled in at like three o'clock in the morning and we sat up on this little rise about 150 yards from them. And we just sat down, you know, we didn't lay down. We were right where we needed to be. We got up, you know, a tripod, tightened his gun in right where the herd was. We're like, okay, you know, as soon as they stand up in the morning, just pick one, you know, like you have a doe tag. There's 40 does out there. Just pick any doe you want, pull the trigger. And so in that sense, it was a lot, you know, it's, it's sort of like sitting in a tree stand or sort of like sitting in a blind, you know the pattern of the animals, but you knew where they were going to be. You know,
1: it's you know exactly where they were going to wake up. So that was kind of fun. That's really cool. That's really cool. I like how you compare that even to turkey hunting, where you put them to rest and, and the fact that yeah they're not going anywhere, and you guys can come back and get the stalk on them early uh, before they've gotten their full alert characteristics. Are you still playing? You're still playing a lot of wind out there because at that point there's. I mean, there are hollows and there are spots that your, your scent can travel down, but you're really, as much as their eyes are one of the biggest protectors, their nose is still as strong as a lot of their senses. I have
2: not found that to be as as truthful as a lot of people will claim to be. Really? Um, their eyes are their biggest uh, asset. Their nose, I mean, we've, we've made stock where the wind is at our back, howling towards them, and as long as we stay out of sight they could care less. Um, it's not like a whitetail or a muley where they'll put their heads up and they'll start looking, they'll start sniffing. They'll, they, I've, I, you don't see them lift their nose to sniff. You see them, th- usually you'll have, you'll, you'll, you'll have a male or a dominant female who is always going to like, every five seconds their heads up. Um, and if they look your way, they will not break that look. To smell, to turn, to, they are looking where they saw that movement. And so kind of like a military sniper, if you see that they're looking at where you were, you're able to back out, go over and come up, and they're still looking at that location uh, where you were. But I have – and I tell people when we take them all the time, like, don't worry about the scent. Don't worry about scent blockers. Don't worry about – your biggest thing is not being seen. Um, this last season was rough. It was hard. It was just me and my dad out there, and we were chasing chasing bucks. And we just – the the way the rain was working, the way it was just—it was a rough opening morning. And we're actually driving out of our, out of the property uh, that we have permission to hunt, which backs up to ninety thousand acres of BLM land. It's this little sliver of landlock that goes in. We've known the guy for fifteen years, so it's, hey, yeah, come on, you can have access to my property, but then use the ninety thousand acres, yeah, acres 90, of BLM. 000, those are numbers that still I just can't even fathom until you're out and there I've to never see it. And I've hunted that property for 10 years, and I don't think I've hit every canyon. Um, and so as we're driving out, just out of the tall grass, the grass is probably waist high because uh, they've had such a wet winter there in Wyoming. And all we see is the tips of this guy's horns, the one that I was showing you earlier, pronghorn. We just see the little tips of the curves up here. And I'm like, stop, 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 stop. My dad's driving because I'm hunting. And I go, stop. And I glass and I just see the tips and I go, all right, we got to figure out how to get to this guy. Right. But it's a flat plane. Like there's no stock. There's no, there's no way to come in behind him. There's no way to come in, in front of him. There's no way to get like, he's out uh, just as far as you can see flat grassland. And so I'm looking on Onyx, I'm going crazy. I'm like, okay, where there's gotta be a draw here. There's gotta be, and there's nothing. Right. So tell my dad, okay, I'm going to get out on the other side. You just keep driving they will just you know if he you, you can kind of see his head looking at the where the where the truck was. I get out of the truck and my dad kind of goes over and out of sight and and then I belly crawl, um, in that grass in the in the rain in the mud. Wind is howling at my back. Like I said, I'm following the the curvature of the of the grass, and I'm going and I would kind of just peek up a little bit enough to see his horns and I'd I'd range him like no no it's not close enough you know because I had to get where I could lay down and see the tip of his horns so that when he stood up, I knew that his body was going to be above the grass and I could pull the trigger. And so when, when, I got into range where I could see the tip of his horns without lifting my head up, where I could just be on my bipod with my head down on my, on my rifle, I was 43 yards oh from this goodness. antelope. And I had where my dad had dropped me off was 500 yards before that. When I first classed him, it was 540 yards, 550 yards. And so I belly crawled through this grass for, you know, 500 yards. And then I just laid there. And it was about an hour, 45 minutes to an hour of me just laying there on my rifle. I'm like, I, if I move, he's, he, you know, he sees me, he's gone. So it's just laying here. And on the highway, about a mile away, we hear like, burr, burr, you know, like a, like a truck going by. And that was just enough to make him stand up. And oh as soon as goodness. he stood up, the lower of the part of his belly was right at the grass level. And I remember I was, I had, knew where his head was. I kind of went to where I thought his his heart would be, and he stood up. And as soon as he stood up, he just laid right back down. Um, and my dad called and goes, "I heard the shot. I'll be right there." And it was one of those moments where people, you know, if I was with anybody else, if it was any, if I was with a new hunter, I don't think we would have killed that buck just because of the patience and the perseverance. And the I wasn't worried about at all about my scent with that guy. It was all about vision. It's all about what they see. Um, which is a big difference from a whitetail, which you've been sitting in the woods, and all of a sudden you hear you know, you're know, stomping, grunting, and blowing. You're like, really? Like, I thought I was playing this wind. Great. And all of a sudden you hear, you know, you're like, ah, freaking buck. And yeah. so, yeah, I don't, I don't play the wind game when it comes to antelope. It's all, it's it's all, all vision. Exciting. Yeah, and, and all, the, all the big hunters that I hunt with out there, too, they'll, they'll tell you the same thing. It's all about staying down low enough where you're not going to be
1: compromised by their incredible eyesight. What kind of – you don't have to use a real heavy rifle for that, being so that they are such a a sleek animal, uh, a lighter-framed animal. What what rifle are you using? Uh, I have killed them with everything from a 6.5
2: to a 270 uh, to a 30-06, out just kind of depending on the, the distance. Because you're shooting at such a flat, long range, I really like that 6.5. I know a lot of guys will give it crap. Oh, it's the – the round's phenomenal, and that new 6.5 PCR, or PRC round, is uh, stupid, but I mean, I took, I took a buck at 615 yards um, with a 6.5, and I meant the thing took three steps and, you know, buckled down, so that round itself, especially, and I'm shooting like the Hornady, you know, uh, ELDX, so it's got that it's got that E tip on the front. So as soon as it goes through the animal, it really has that good mushroom, just plunk. Um, but yeah, you can shoot them and I've shot them. I've shot more 30 out six than anything else, just because you're out there hunting mule deer, whitetail, and antelope. So you want to be able to, whatever you, you come across, you want to be able to, you know, and those, those whitetail up in Wyoming are like your guys' white tail, which are like horses, not like yes. those little Texas, you know, puppies. <laughs> so little
1: coos deer? Yeah. A little <laughs> he said little toys yeah my uh yeah with the scent i have i had a nanny doe um i actually had a chance to take her this year which worked out wonderful it was one of those like i was i was glad to shoot her um i mean she she was hefty she made every other deer that i got this year look small um i need to put a scale i didn't i didn't have a scale uh in my shop yet but just Ranging how much she is, she had to have been 175, reaching 200 pounds, just a massive deer. Her snout had this. Uh, I think she got either got in a fight or had some sort of injury, but she had this hump on the top of her nose. But so but like that's said, actually what that's oh, actually but, called
2: is a Ro- it that's actually called a Roman nose. Uh, you'll find that on whitetail uh, the older they get. So. You'll, you'll be able to really like when they start to get super, super old, their nose gets that big kind of roundedness to it. And that's just a bunch of cartilage. It's from fighting. That's from age. It's sort of like you, you see that old drunk dude at the, at the bar, right? It's got that big old giant bulbous of a nose, right? The same thing's going to happen to, to whitetail, um, in that. So you can actually, you know, we'll be sitting there looking at, looking at deer in Texas or, you know, Alabama, Michigan, you, you name it. And, you know, a lot of guys, we're, we're, we're looking at the belly, we're looking at the neck, we're looking at the way the ears break down, right? But when they turn that head, you can see that Roman nose on it. Um, and it's, and you'd be surprised if you were to look at the teeth on any deer that has that Roman nose, it's, they're almost gone,
1: completely gone. So worn down. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, that's what she had. She had that Roman nose. She had that hump right there, just, yeah, just above where her actual nose is, in that snout. And... She just knew as much as I knew her, she knew me. There would be so many times where I'm sitting, and it would be just like you said, with the scent, uh, 80 yards away, and I'd hear I'd hear blowing, and I knew exactly who was blowing. She just she just knew my spots, and you know I, I have taken deer around her, but she has never given me that opportunity. I've had them walk down like as if they're coming right to my spot. I am just about ready to go and draw the bow, just to have her not feel right. Make a make a few calls to her her uh, her girls and turn them right around. And that was that was my night. And it was just like, gosh, she's just been a thorn in my side. And I took her with a firearm this year. Uh, actually, she was one of the two like. Well, she's one of the first deer that I've taken with a firearm. Everything else has been with, with bow, but to have her, uh, run, I think she got spooked by either a piece of machinery at the farmer or at the, at the farm or a neighboring hunter that ended up putting a shot on, but they ran in and they were looking everywhere else, but at me. And so I was able to take her, uh, we're a shotgun zone we're in the limited fire zone we have too many people around us so as much as i would love to use a six five and be able to have that reach out and touch something power uh i've I've just been with the tried and true shotgun the 12 gauge but anyway put her right down and i i tell you what you know you get something with that big a caliber that big a hole it's it's going to put that animal down so that's what i was curious on even with something that's as frail as a as a pronghorn, you're still trying to use rounds that can reach out there. So you said, yeah, .30-06, that's an older round that, you know, doesn't have the uh, sexy appeal. It's got more of the heritage and tradition behind it, but it's still an an effective tool, especially when you've got multiple species around you.
2: Oh, I have a, my very first rifle ever that I bought myself was a, back in the day, what, 15 years ago, was a, a Thompson Center back when they were first coming out, like, you know, it's a Smith & Wesson company, but everyone's like Thompson Center, thirty out 6 and I didn't know. I was like, oh, out 6 I know that's what my grandpa used, you know. And I remember I got it, and that gun, I hunt a lot in the West. And so a lot of the friends and stuff have deemed that the Wicked Witch of the West because it has taken down, since I started big game hunting 10 years ago, um, it just put down its 600th animal um, total. That's, that's hog, deer, antelope, you know, elk, you name it. I'm at odd axis, and, or, you know, big old, big old sheep. It's, it's tagging them. Um, and it's just consistent. And it's one of those deals. Like I tell everyone, when you know your weapon and your weapon knows you, it's like, you know, I grew up bird hunting. And so you put a shotgun in my shoulder and I don't even think about it. It's just muscle memory of me shooting bird shooting dove quail pheasant chuck or waterfowl you name it and it's just it's muscle memory like I don't look at the sights I don't it's just my body in my you know I know where it sits on my cheek I know where it sits in my shoulder I know where you know where my where the eye relief is on it you know I get sent shotguns all the time from companies and it's funny I always turn back to the one that I got when I was like 18 because it's just it's it's comfortable it's not sexy it's not sleek but it's you know it's a powerhouse Right. And with that 30 out six is the same deal. I've got, you know, I've got a, I can't tell you how many rifles sitting in a safe. And it's always like, mm, I think I'm going to take out the wicked witch. And everyone's like, dude, but you've got, you know, I'm like, yeah, that, that gun works nice. It is nice. But this guy, I, I put it on my shoulder and it's no, I don't have to adjust my turrets. I don't, it's like, if it's within 400 yards, it's dead. Like there's no if, ands, buts, there's no, and, and we were hunting in Texas this year and I t- we took out some uh, football players Right after they got done with their with their with their NFL season, and they all wanted to learn how to deer hunt, and so we went out to the ranch and we were we were hunting out in Texas. And I remember the, the one of the guys was like, "I've never shot any, anything before." And I go, "Just here, point and shoot." Okay, I said, "Don't think about it. Don't you're you got my body build. Put your head down, point shoot." And he ended up shooting like I think seven or eight deer in a matter of like two days. Wow. And everyone, I mean, there's deer running. He's like, "I got this."
1: And
2: everyone's like, "Dude." <laughs> He's like, well, you said point and shoot, and I'm like, I told you point and shoot. Like I'm not, and I think that's where it comes down to someone like you with your bow, right? You know your bow so well that you can almost do it blindfolded, you know, by feel, by, by, by you know, you know where it's hitting your lip, you know where your anchor points are. Same thing applies to a rifle or a shotgun, and that's why I, I laugh when these guys get so caught up in like, oh, bows are better, rifles are better, shot. A weapon's a weapon, and once you've mastered that weapon, it's fun. And it's it's going to get groceries, and it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a part of it. I could care less. I mean, I ha- I have killed animals every legal way. I think there's a legal way to kill an animal, from pellet rifles to spears to stabbing hogs. Like, I've done it all,
1: and all of them, to me, have a place, you know? Yes, yes. That adage of, and I, I always reference this because, you know, my my collection of firearms is quite narrow, but at the same time, like I always live on that adage that beware the man with one gun. That yeah. just like you so eloquently put together, saying that I know this rifle. As soon as I put it in or the shotgun, I, I put it on my shoulder and I'm not thinking about where is it placed. I'm not, it, it, you're not thinking. It just is point and shoot. Just like you said, it's it's set up just where you need it to be. And I can tell if I have not drawn the bow. In a couple weeks, it's one of those things. Like my very first shot is already going to be one that I shoot let down. I don't know why I release it, but it's like, you know what, you the the relationship. You know, it, all of a sudden there needs to be a warming period. I've I've left it down for a couple weeks. Let's pick it back up. Let's get back into this. Let's get into the flow of things. And you then you remember exactly what uh what you need to do and then after that man with consistent practice especially leading up to those seasons it is it's it's game on that you once you get in there it's i'm not thinking about my shot process it's more or less i'm thinking about my setup as soon as the deer comes into that circle of my ethical range you know all emotions are off we're not we're not using the front side of my brain we're using the back side the lizard brain at that point
2: yeah, well, that's, like, funny, too, because, you know, I take out a lot of new hunters, dove hunting and quail hunting, and you'll also have a lot of veterans that come out to the fields. Like, like last year, I think we had, like, 33 guys in the field that I had. Talked to a farmer, got this, got this field. It was an old wheat field he just plowed over, and so the dove were, like, like Argentina, right? And I have all these buddies that are coming in, and their shotguns hadn't been taken out since the last dove season. <laughs> and they're sitting there, and they're missing. They're like, I don't get what I'm missing. I go, because you haven't touched your weapon for an entire year. I don't think you cleaned your weapon. Like, there's still the blood on the side from the dove that hit it You know, last year. And we were talking to some of these new guys. I go, listen, I try to get, you know, there, there's so many things. Like, there's a, there's a company called Mantis X, not sponsored, but you can go look them up if you want to. They make – um attachments for shotguns handguns bow and arrows um that you use your phone it's not like the what's that one you pull back on the bow and see like oh the fake animals you shoot um
1: oh yeah you know what i'm talking about it's got a rubber band for the yeah yeah it's
2: not like that like you're actually using your weapon your firearm uh your handgun and it's like a laser mint like when i do classes you can lay down on someone's gun attach it to them and it'll actually pick up their movement left right how they're you know, if they're jerking their trigger pull and I'll put that on my shotgun and just do it in my garage, you know, just to get the main, you know, like, Hey, as soon as it hits this point, pull the trigger just to see where my face is going, you know, and my, and my daughters who are hunters too. It's like, Hey, we're going to go out to, you know, a, a month before dove season's going to start. I'm going to go out there and start slinging clays for them. Even though it's hundred degrees, we'll go out there and shoot a box of clays and it's just to get their muscle memory. So they go out there and they're out shooting the boys at 13 years old. You know, and the, all, all these grown men are like, why are your girls shooting so well? Because they shot, you know? they practice. <laughs> and and I, I laugh at the bow hunters to do the same thing. Like, deer season's coming, so a week before deer season opens, you see them all at the range, right? They're like, oh, i got to practice. Deer season opens next week. I'm like, you should have be been practicing
1: in July for opener in October, bud. Yeah. Um, practice begins at the end of season. You shouldn't put it away. And I know, you know, reality sets in. Life is always there, but... There are ample opportunities for leagues in the winter. And I mean, I use that as an excuse more socially, I should say. But at the same time, I have found just my level of confidence to where I can be nitty gritty on paper uh, through January and February. Then when we get back outside, like now I can, you know, I've I've still had that conditioning. But now my nitty and grittiness, you know, I'm not worried about breaking a line. I'm not worried about, uh trying to necessarily get it inside the the x at this point now i just want my broadheads to fly super super straight and so now it becomes an equipment tinkering issue but the practice has already been in there so yeah tons of balance everywhere else when it comes to that
2: it's funny i was talking to a, a big bow hunter during turkey season up in georgia and he was laughing because there were all these we were watching all these videos of these guys out there oh 50, 50 years in practice he goes uh your first arrow is the only arrow that ever counts. <laughs> he goes, why are you out there shooting 50 arrows? Your first arrow, you're not, you, you not going to get a second chance at a deer with an arrow 99.99% of the time. He goes, so a true hunter should be able to pick up their bow, sit for 30 minutes, don't move, draw back, and hit their mark. And then get up, go do things, come back an hour later, sit down, hit your mark. He goes, sitting at an archery block and shooting 50 arrows at it, It's pointless because you're building a muscle memory that doesn't need to be there. Your muscle memory should be the first arrow and that's it because that's the arrow that counts when you're a bow hunter. It's sort of like a rifle hunter. Like we, when I'm teaching people how to shoot rifle, it's like the mechanics of how to reload and cock a second one is not as important as breathing for your first shot. It just isn't your first shot is your first shot. And that goes with anything. You know, shotguns and birds are a little different. Sometimes you're like, ah, first shot I miss with a dove. I'm a little behind. Lead a little more. Boom, pull the trigger. But for for archery, I think it's it's funny. I never ever really thought about it like that until he started talking about it. I go, huh. So now I, I literally go to the archery range, pull out all my stuff, I'll sit there, I'll be talking to people, fling one arrow, start packing everything up. People are like, What? I go, It's the only one that counts. If it hit where it's supposed to go, that's a dead deer. And it's all these dudes laugh at me, but I'm like, if I do that every day for two weeks. And I can guarantee that that first shot is money in my mind. I know that when that deer walks in, my first shot is money. There's so many times as, as archers where we're like, Oh, I dialed it in. My fifth shot was great. Well, your fifth shot.
1: That's yeah. There's nothing there to even shoot at five
2: shots. That's the end of the season. And so being confident and, and comfortable at going out, pulling at your bow, throwing one arrow down, and then being able to go out and get your deer, I think, is is where we need to start looking at it I and mean, where we need to start really, you know, having those different competitions. Yeah, you know, go walk up a mountain and shoot a, a 3D target. It's great. It gets your heart rate up. But 90% of bow hunters are sitting in tree stands. So literally go sit in a lawn chair in front of a 3D target for 45 minutes to an hour, slowly grab your bow, pull the trigger. You know, like... That's real world scenario situations. That's like what well, if you look at like, you know, frogmen, seals, all that. You know, they're not going to go in there. And go okay, we need it's repetition. It's, hey, we're going to go breach this house. If we don't breach this house correctly, then we're all dead. You know, then you're all going to go drown and have to. We're going to bring it back to life. So, I think it's that mechanics we need to look at. And it's, I don't know. I think it makes you a better hunter overall.
1: When in the field, accuracy and precision count. That's why we switch our slug guns to rifle barrels, tune our arrows, and use a fish finder on the water. But why should our drive for control end there? The TapaQ line of meat probes gives an instantaneous look at the temperatures of our prized meals, both internal and the cooking chamber. TapaQ uses sturdy hardware made and assembled here in the US, along with their user-friendly, sophisticated software that connects to your smart device. Whether it's a traditional corded probe or the new cordless air probes that give you a wealth of freedom where wires would just get in the way. Adding a Tappacue meat probe can significantly help in getting to that medium rare on venison or waterfowl, ensuring your upland bird stays moist, or even charting your long cooks on a smoker. Visit tappacue.com or find the link in the show notes. And use the code HUNT10, all uppercase, at checkout to save 10%. Adding a probe to your kit can make you one tap away from your queue. Dry-aged steaks used to be a steakhouse-only indulgence, An old-world charcuterie was pricey due to being imported or created at a small batch-specific scale. Thanks to Umay Dry, their synthetic dry-aging bags and casings allow you to create these meat-crafting treats in your own kitchen. Working in tandem with your fridge, the Umai Dry bag material allows moisture and air to pass through, making it possible to dry-age large cuts of steaks or roasts. Paired with their curing and seasoning kits, along with safe and easy-to-follow instructions, salamis and dry sausage are well within your grasp. Use the link in the show notes and sign up for the newsletter to receive 10% off your order. Umai Dry, helping us elevate our wild game from the home kitchen. Jeremiah Doty, everybody, spitting truth right here. It's the first arrow. It's the first shot that counts when it comes to hunters because that second one is just going to be a hope and a prayer at that point. Critter's moving. You have, you know, your heart rate's going. It's not going to be the greatest shot in the world. The greatest shot needs to be the first arrow. Jeremiah, that was awesome. Yeah, you know what? I can't take all credit for it, Jason. (laughs) <laughs> he's the one that kind of
2: spit that truth when we were turkey hunting and it like i said it made made complete sense because i was like oh crap i never really thought about the first arrow i remember going there going i gotta go get more arrows i shot 25 i i want to have 50 so i don't have to go walk to the you know the the box every single time so um which is is fun you know and, and for me this year i've got i've got a deer in my sights that i shot last season the end of last season in my zone. Um, it's an archery-only area down by the river, and the deer come out, like, right at sunset. Like, you literally have 10 minutes to make a shot legally, oh and then they God. come, and then they walk back in from the, the big alfalfa fields with, like, you have five minutes to shoot <laughs> legally, and I got in on this target buck that I've been eyeing for a couple of years, a big old four-by-five mule deer, and he, he, he everyone calls him the ghost, because he's just an old, old buck. And this year he came out, there was about 45 doe that were coming out into the field. And I was sitting in this, like just this little bush that wasn't as big as my head, sitting right up against it, kind of brush myself in. We're in the desert. So it's not like big forest behind us. We can hide behind It's like, you don't move because, and all those doe came out and they're kind of feeding real slow. And I'm like, man, he's not going to come. And all of a sudden I just see this big rack, you know, kind of come out through this, these mesquite bushes. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Right. And, as you know, as bow hunters, we've already, we, we've already ranged everything within our, our kill zone. Right. So if, what he else he got tree, true? <laughs> if he hits that tree, it's 45 yards. If he hits that bush, it's 26 yards. If he hits, right. So I'm watching him walk and he, and he hits the tree and I'm like, Oh, okay. 45 yards. Right. But all these doe eyes are looking at me, you know, cause I'm the only bush in this hole. I'm like, this is not gonna, you know, and then he walks, he's walking to the, he's still walking. He walks to that neck. I'm like, Oh, okay. He's at 35 yards. You know, I'm like, Okay, adjust my you know adjust my pen real quietly down on my and then he stops and he kind of like looks up towards the field and there's like a truck driving way out in the field. I'm like, "Okay, this is my shot. You know, pull back in my lap, pull up, take aim, let the arrow fly." I'm at he bucks. I'm like, oh, "Like all the adrenaline in the world." But he turns and runs back into this like planted tree line that the the fish and game had planted. It's like you stick your hand in there and, you, and it disappears along with the 45 doe so there's like i'm not going to try to find a broken branch or and i go over my arrows covered in blood and i'm like perfect so i call my dad call my other hunting buddy i'm like hey i'm gonna give this about a half an hour and then by this time it's pitch black mosquitoes are out and i'm like all right we're gonna we're, we're gonna go find this buck and so we follow the blood right to the tree line we get in this tree line and we can't i mean it's we're breaking branches and i go let's it's 39 degrees let's back out we'll come in first thing in the morning and we'll find this deer, right? Good. News. I call my buddy who's a fish and wildlife uh, officer out in that area. He's like, dude, I'm not working tomorrow. I'll grab a couple guys. We'll all come out. We'll all come do like a grid pattern search. We'll find this buck, right? Because he was stoked because he's seen this deer on trail cameras and everyone else's pictures. Could not find that deer. Could, I mean, we, we searched all day, I mean, with eight, nine guys, grid pattern from where I shot him to the river. So we're like, okay, he jumped in the river tried to swim away, drown, floated down river. I was, that's the first animal I've ever lost. And I, you know, cause I shoot rifle primarily. So yeah. usually when the 30 six hits them in the side, they don't, they don't um, run off very far. <laughs> um, and it just was killing me. And then I, I went from there to go teach one of my deer classes and the whole deer class, man, I'm just like, gosh, beside myself, like just, this is. And so there was like two weeks left in season. And I was like, I'm going to try to go back out. And, but I was like, I'm signing my tag. Cause for me, if I find blood, it's a dead animal. Like, that, yep. that's my tag. And so I signed my tag, let Fish and Game sign it. And he's trying to convince me not to. He's like, no, you know, we didn't find it. And I'm like, I, I know where I shot him, and I know it. Well, he sends me a video of a bow hunter on the very last day of season. And that buck comes walking out. And right where I'd shot him is, a you know, the mark. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. There's no way with the amount of blood, it you know, right behind the shoulder, well, this bow hunter puts it in, I mean, he's videoing it, puts it in the same exact hole I put it, right? Like, you watch his Luminox go right through it. And I'm like, oh, whatever, he's got my buck. Well, then the next text, the next day, it was like, we can't find him. We had blood trail go into the trees. We can't find oh this buck. Oh, my gosh, the ghost lives. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. He's taking two arrows, like money shots. Right? Any, any bow hunter would be like, that's a dead deer, right? Yeah. And so they don't find him well a month a month ago a buddy of mine who lives in that area sent me a picture of that buck in velvet with a scar on his side the size of you know the the size of my pinky and he's got on the opposite side it's got some funky growth because he got shot twice right yeah and i'm like you all right so i put in for a tag for that area and my dad and me are like, okay, for the month before, we're gonna go like take weekends. We're gonna go scout. We're gonna. Go, I, I want to know at you know opening day, October first, or actually I think it's whatever that first Saturday in October is. I want to know where he's walking out. I want to be sitting there, and I want to. I'm gonna. I'm gonna get like the biggest rage I can find. You know, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go for a small broad. <laughs> I'm going I'm gonna. Oh, is that a 17 inch rage broadhead? That, yeah, I'm gonna take that the one.
1: Turkey uh,
2: guillotine on this thing, <laughs> dude. I'm. I'm telling you, I'm gonna get a 400 grain arrow. You know, I'm gonna dial up to 70 pounds it's like this sucker's gonna you know i've, I've talked to newcomb blinds i'm gonna put a Nucum blind out like this sucker is gonna get freaking and it's one of those deals where my buddy was laughing He goes dude you are i go because here's the deal at this point it's become like you and that doe right this is personal this is we know each other i have tried hunting him many times he finally made a mistake well he made a mistake twice um but he made a mistake for me and my shot hit i mean, like i said it was By far, it was one of those shots that you're like... And even even the guy that shot it goes, how'd that deer not die? Uh, So I don't know, just nick the bottom of that one lung or whatever, but yeah, he's uh, coming that first Saturday in October. That is where I'm going to be, is sitting, sweating my butt off with a bow in my hand, waiting for him to make a mistake. And and I told my dad, I said, I'm hunting him until I come home. So my trailer is out the river. If it takes me two weeks, it takes me two weeks. But... I'm not coming home till till I'm guaranteed that he is not there, or until I have his backstrap frenched out on my Traeger at my barbecue with my feet up with all my buddies who helped me look for him eating dinner.
1: Like that's those are the two options. It's so funny how and I I was never a big I'm not a big reader, especially especially after taking my getting my master's degree, uh, I never wanted to touch a book again. <laughs> Never wanted to read. I I think I'm finally kind of warming up to the idea of getting back into either stories or, you know, uh, fiction or, or something. But I do like resonate a little bit with, uh, the story of Moby Dick. And I forget the Mm. name of the captain. Um, Ahab, Ahab, but like you between Ahab and Moby Dick and the drama and how that man pushed, the boat and pushed the crew to the point of where they're like listen captain you are crazy and he didn't care it was all sights on finding that whale how easily you can interchange these characters where it was me and that nanny doe or it's you and the ghost it you know it's just it's the same story but man we're switching in different characters at this point it's an absolute novel that you're writing at this point
2: Oh, and I can't, like, for me, for me, it, it isn't about the head on the wall. I know I have a ton of skulls on the wall, but for me, it's all the stories around the meal, right? And at this point, it's, it's, it goes back to that old adage of like, hey, it's the story surrounding that meal is going to be one of the most epic stories. And I'm going to create one of the most epic meals I can to honor that story. And And if it, if it's to the point where I never shoot that buck, that's even going to be a better story and it's going to be a greater story and it's going to, but I don't want to go out there and and be lazy and then have someone else take that pursuit. Does that make sense? And I think that's where a lot of people get so caught up in today's society. It's like, Oh, well, uh," for me, it's, it's, you know, I'm working on two cookbooks right now and I'm exhausted because I'm trying to do it all myself. And everyone's like, Oh, just take a break. I'm like, yeah, but if I take a break, someone else is going to come in behind me and they're going to, they're going to take what I want to do. And they're going to do, you know, it's like, especially with like my from field to plate classes and everything else, there's so many companies and groups that are coming out doing the same thing that I started seven, eight years ago. And I can either, you know, I had a, I had a talk with uh, an outdoor life magazine article lady the other day and I told her flat out cause she was like, Oh, do you, do you feel jealous or anything when you see all these other wild game type chefs come out these, these, and I'm like, no, for me, it's not, it's not a competition in the outdoor industry it is a huge competition with everybody in the cooking world it's even a bigger competition you look at some of these chefs and every tv show out there right now is a competition right It is a it is a cooking competition it is i am better than you i cook better than you i make better plates than you and my biggest thing in this whole industry was to not be that person right is and and there's a lot of people that you've had on your podcast that i'm really good friends with and we all kind of have the same thing like hey we're here to scratch each other's back and we're here to encourage each other. We're here to, to, to help. And in my mind, the more people that are doing it and creating food that people can get out there, the more excited people are to go out and hunt, right? The more, the more passion driven, we're going to be out to get out there and do stuff. And so when I look at the pursuit of an animal, I look at the food at, I look at it from a food perspective. I look at it from how can I take this animal and glorify it so much so that people are like, I want to go shoot a deer now. That That burger looked so good that I want to go shoot a deer to eat a burger and taking away this whole head on a wall thing. And so for me shooting that buck, his head is just part of the story, right? Part Mm -hmm. of the, hey, this is what happened. And to be able to tell that story as people are sitting around a campfire eating jerky sticks. And let me tell you the story about this jerky stick. Because this odd dad behind me, I can tell you the story about that odd dad, how we were in Texas for my, my 30th birthday and a bunch of Texans told me that Awdad was the worst meat they've ever eaten, and no one eats Awdad. We shoot him, We skin him, We take the head and hide, and we leave the body for the for the coyotes. And so we shot a big old Awdad. I took the meat, and they're like, you're, you're nuts. We came home. I cooked dinner for all these Texans, and there was not a clean plate left. They're like, well, what, what kind of meat was that? And I go, Awdad. Oh, they're like, no, it wasn't. But for <laughs> me, I said, okay, what, what regions of the world are eating dirty, nasty, stinky goats and sheep? The Middle, Middle East, the right? East. Yeah. Yeah and i'm not saying that in a negative way to anyone anyone that's that's middle eastern but you're going to raise that that goat and then when it's done serving its purpose it's going to become dinner right i've been to india i've been to pakistan i've been to you know iraq i've been to all these other places and the older nastier sheep and goats are the ones that are getting eaten they're not eating the young one that's still producing milk they're not using eating the the young one that's still you know giving birth to to two or three kids they're eating the old nasty you know the ones that male are passing yeah. yeah, and so looking at their flavors and their cultures, understanding the dynamics of their plate is how I prepare this. So doing a red wine and red curry on one of them, making homemade naan bread, so we're sitting there just eating it out of the out of the cast iron, then taking the other one and grinding it up and making, you know, like different Greek and Middle Eastern style foods. And they're all excited. But I think where a lot of people get mistaken is they're like, Oh, I got to cook this like a, like a, like a cow. Or I got to cook it like a whitetail.
1: Yeah.
2: That does not, not that odd dad is not going to taste like a whitetail (laughs) and some whitetails suck depending on what they're eating. You know, like I can't, you know, elk, elk is phenomenal, but if you get a low Valley elk, that's eating nothing but sagebrush, it's going to suck. Unless you understand how to complement those flavors versus hinder those flavors. The mule deer that, that we shoot, they're eating nothing but cactus and sagebrush. They're very, very strong in flavor. But once you understand how to complement that flavor, instead of trying to mask it, the problem is a lot of people try to mask it, right? It's like I was given, because someone told me, well, it's like I, well, what can I do to hide that flavor? I said, have you ever taken a dump in a bathroom and sprayed rose potpourri spray? Like, yeah, I said, it still smells like flowery shit. <laughs> Pardon my French, but you still know someone went in there and took a dump, right? Now, how can you then take that meat and complement the smell and the taste versus trying to hide the – because once you try to hide it, someone's like, oh, there's something. There's You're something hide about it. it, yep. Sort of like when your mom used to hide lima beans and stuff. You're like, Mom, I know there's lima beans in here. <laughs> now I love lima beans, but back then it was one of those deals. So
1: I think once you understand that, then Wild Game really takes on a whole new level of fun. Yes. I had just had a conversation with Jesse Griffiths, uh, author of the, the Hog Book, and he explained it very, very well to me um, in that when he he does get a batch of, of hogs, either for his restaurant or, you know, just a group of hunters that he's helping, uh, helping out, there's a bit of uniqueness to every single uh, animal that comes in. Just as you described, that elk that's eating sage in the bottomlands, or just like that odd ad that, you know what, it's going to have a funky flavor that's not going to taste like corn, not going to taste like soybean, that if someone is new to Wild Game, they are going to notice every aspect of that. And the challenge, the fun in that point, the excitement, the reason why we get up in the morning and we want to chase Moby Dick is because we're going for that uniqueness. We're going for the not easy part of I want to make this animal the one that I got. Whatever its uniqueness, I want to complement that because we're trying to elevate this animal, not whitetail as general, not wild hogs as general, not this awdad as general that everybody's cast off, but look what I did with this particular animal. And I think right there is you hit the nail on the head that it's, it's a challenge it's the full circle, I think, of being an outdoorsman. As we chase these animals, as we pursue them, we then want to carry that same level of thought, that same level of care, that same level of motivation and drive into presenting it to our family and to our friends. If it is just for a whitetail burger, let's make that the best on burger that we can. If it's going to be awdad, let's blow the socks off a bunch of Texans because they've never truly had what audat is supposed to be like. So, yeah, I love how you put that all together.
2: Yeah, and, it's, and it goes to, like, being going back to antelope. You know, everyone gives antelope such a bad rap. I think it's one of the top wild game eats that there is. It is beautiful. The texture, the flavor, the aroma, and the difference is is that it's, you can't treat it like a whitetail. You can't sit there and throw it in the back of your truck and drive it to a processor without getting it cool. Like the moment, the moment an antelope dies, it starts to decay. I know, I know that everyone says that, but you, you got a you while with a whitetail like yep. before, before they start to get funky. Um, as soon as you shoot an antelope and you go to drag it, you'll be pulling clumps of hair out of its hide. You can pretty much skin or pluck, like you do a duck or a turkey, an antelope with that much hair that you, you can go all the way down to the hide just by grabbing hair like this, you know, really, really gentle, not even pulling a lot. And so we're, you know, we, we drive into town, and you'll see a dude with a, with a buck in the back of the truck, ungutted, 75-degree weather, who's taking it to a processor but decided to stop at McDonald's first and get a Big Mac on his way into the processor. And you're like, dude, your antelope. He's like, ah, antelope meat sucks anyway. Well, it sucks because of the way that you're treating it. You know, it sucks because of the way that you are allowing the meat to spoil, you know, and try to, instead of being a dick about it, trying to educate and really elevate this idea that, that by taking the time, you can make that meat so much better. You know, like understanding how to process a hog is going to flavor the hog completely different. You cannot get pee anywhere, you know, like, so for me, I go from the back to the front versus the front to the back, um, because that way I can pull that hide down. I can get through those plates, And, you know, same thing with doing, like, javelina. Javelina's phenomenal meat. But you've got this stink sack on the back. If you puncture that or get that anywhere, so, again, coming and pulling that away and getting... There's so many ways that you can treat an animal to make it taste beautiful and to make it taste elegant and to make it taste spaghetti and meatballs for your family. Like, one of the things I'm putting in my book is treat meat as meat, right? And... Don't treat it as something that is less of, because I think a lot of times as hunters we're like, oh, it's just deer meat, right? Or it's the opposite. We're like, well, we can't eat that. We got to have a big party and invite people over because I got to make a spread. Treat it as your everyday. Like for me, I can't eat domestic meats. And so for me, wild game is an everyday. I've got three freezers full of wild game that's an everyday. You know, breakfast sausage to hot links to all the stuff that I'm processing myself because I have to know what goes in it. Because my allergies aren't just beef. It goes into a lot of oils and processed stuff. So mm-hmm. seasonings and oils and fats that come derivative of other, of other things I can't have. And so really taking this time to understand the animal has, I think, made me a better hunter, made me a better father, made me a better... Because now I don't want to waste meat, right? I don't just want to sling a, you know, a bullet through both shoulders. It's like, okay, well, where is the precise spot that I'm going to get the least amount of damage on that meat? Even, even for an arrow. You know, you're still cutting away damage from an arrow going in. It's not going to have the ballistic explosion that absolutely. goes on, but you're still going to have, you're still going to have die off
1: from. You're going to have blood from, meat. Yes. Yeah. From, absolutely.
2: from sticking an animal. So it's where can we do to minimize the loss of meat, you know, and how much and how well can we get all that meat off the bone? People call me crazy to sit there and scrape the ribs and the, the joints until there's no meat left in their white bones. Well, I
1: just made like 17 more meatballs for my spaghetti. Yep. That's how I look they at it. They mock you for the time that you spend on taking the most out of the, the hunt that you've already had. But at the same time, like, I feel it's it's almost in reverse. Like, how quickly are you to give up on the carcass that you have hanging? Where, you know, if I've gotten pretty good at, at cleaning a bone. But there's some times where I do kind of like let myself go on a knuckle i'll cut a wide around the knuckle but that's not because i'm trying to be lazy at this point it's that's going to go right into the stock pot any long bone that i can go to get to the stock pot it's going to go to work it's going to go into that flavor enhancing i'm going to get the gelatin i'm going to get the fat that's in there we're going to get all those flavors to work in there but it's extra steps that i'm having to take that yes does take time yes does take effort but i feel like i shouldn't be I feel like it shouldn't be a mocking point because you want to go, go to bed early because you're not going to sit here and scrape the rest of your deer. You'd rather pitch it off to, to the side. You know, my, I guess my grandparents were always on the waste-not-want-not train. They grew up through the Depression. And so I, not to say that it's genetics, but at the same time, when I have an animal hanging there, I want to glean every little bit of it because I don't want to waste any of it.
2: Yeah. I mean, we have that saying in my classes, it's just another meatball. And I'll tell people all that, like, why are we doing this? Because it's just another meatball. Like, and I tell people, like, if you don't want to take the time to, to get an extra two pounds, don't take the time. It's your animal. You do it. This is why I do it. You know, and, and in my classes, I say there's no right or wrong way to do anything. There are better ways and more effective ways to do things, but there's no right or wrong way. There's no right or wrong way how to skin a deer. There are better ways to skin a deer. My way is probably completely different than the way you do it, which is completely fine. I have found that this is what works best for me, and so for me to fill my freezer, this is the steps that I've found that work best for me. And there's people like, well, I just don't, I don't want to. I'm like, well, that again, that's you. Just another meatball. It's another meatball you're gonna get from it. We had, I had one guy one time, and he's like, I just don't, I don't think there's enough in it. I don't think there's enough for the extra 45 minutes it's going to take me to really get through all this sinew and to get through, I don't think the effort's there. I said, that's fine. Leave your whole pile of scraps. And he's like, okay. So he had a five-gallon bucket full of scraps, right? That he was like, ah, it's too much work, too much, just throwing it in the bucket. Well, that dude goes in, grabs a whiskey, sitting there watching a football game. And I sat there and I turned on music and I sat there and I scraped and I got through sinew and I got through this and it took me about a half an hour. I took that five-gallon bucket, which when I weighed it, cause I decided mm, I'm just going to weigh this. It weighed 14 pounds of just junk that he had thrown in this five gallon bucket. When I was done, it weighed a pound and a half. So I got 12 and a half, 13 pounds of usable, delicious meat from what he said was scrap. So then I had the whole class come back in. I said, okay, here's what, let's just call him Bill. Just in case he's listening on and be like, that's me. Um here's <laughs> you here, know what Bill? here's who the, is you <laughs> yeah it is you Bill you know exactly who you is um and I said this is this is the five gallon bucket Bill gave me we all weighed it we all know that it weighed about 14.2 pounds. Here is the meat I got out of his bucket, here is the little handful. And they're like, You really you've only been in here half an hour. I said, Right. This is what I'm trying to teach you. I'm trying to teach you that if you have the extra time, do it. You can take this into your kitchen throw on your TV, talk to your wife, hang out with your kids as you're sitting there scraping this. It isn't sitting in your garage by yourself, lonely. Like, you can also take all of that scrap that you had, vacuum seal it, and then guess what? You can take all that scrap and throw it into a crock pot or a pressure cooker, and all that meat is now going to fall apart and shred, and all that sinew is going to turn hard rock rock hard. It's going to float to the top. You can scoop it all, and now you've got meat. But instead, we're so easy to just chuck it, right? Ah, this, oh, this is too much work. It's too much work. And if we actually look at hunting in a general, we, let's look at TV shows. Let's look at articles in magazines. Let's look at whatever, right? The, the top TikToks or whatever. It's all about the instant gratification. It's all about fast food. It's all about what's popular now. It's all about the success of a, of a, of a grip and grin. It's all about the pursuit, right? Which is great. But people will take six weeks to prepare to go shoot one whitetail by patterning the deer, sitting in tree stands, cutting, cutting limbs away from their, from their shooting zones, planting crops, watering those crops, tending those crops, checking trail cameras, you know, doing all the things they need to do, tuning their bow, sighting their rifle, you know, tuning their shotgun, patterning their shotgun. And then they pull the trigger and they have no more time in the world to do anything else. I don't have the time for that. Are you kidding me? You just gave up six weeks of your life to pattern that deer and you can't spend an extra half an hour to treat it the way it's supposed to be treated. That think that that's the only time that it really upsets me is the excuse of, I don't have time when truly, you know that, but then they're sitting there drinking a whiskey, BSing, watching football. Like.
1: Absolutely. I, I was just quick looking up. I, I've been on this kick. I, I read an article and I know uh, my listeners are, are going to be they're like, Oh, here we go again. Nick and his, uh, his proverb, but I got hit hard with uh, Proverbs twelve twenty seven: the lazy do not roast any game, but the diligent feed on the riches of the hunt. That's, that's coming <laughs> right from, uh, right from Proverbs, right from the good word. Yeah. And... It, th- that's a sticker on my gun case and
2: on the side of the wicked witch of the West. Yes. when I get lazy I look at that on the side of my gun and I go Phew, don't be lazy one more, I, one more step you know yes. like that deer might be over that rise one more step
1: but even how like the sluggard the lazy is going to get up and do all the stuff because there's going to be some sort of recognition for it the recognition for that person then stops once they've put the deer in the back of the truck that's when their hunt is over for individuals like you and I, the hunt isn't over until it is packaged, until it is put into the freezer, until the, the dish has then been manifested and put before us. When I present the flesh of that animal to be consumed by people, that's when the hunt is over for me. You know, these hunts are sometimes half a year because the, the <laughs> I haven't made the sausage yet or I haven't made the, the grind yet. But at the same time, when my kids enjoy the burger or I bring the sausage to camp and then share that with a bunch of people, it's like that is the culmination. That's the end of the hunt. That is when we can give praise to the hunt. But to come in and just be like, yeah, I want these antlers on the wall, it is one of those dead ends that I feel like, you know, if, that, if that's where the movie ends, you know what, I, I don't know if I'm going to give it a two thumbs up. I don't know if I'm going to get there because it's not fully manifested at that point. No, I, and that's, it's
2: funny, too, because I think we're at that, that turning point. Um, you see a lot of people, when I first started this 10, 15 years ago, who were making fun of me, mocking me, whatever, for saving certain parts of the animal or for eating this or for doing this or for oh why are you frenching out I remember when I first started frenching out the back loins you can trace it back I was one of the first people to start frenching out those those back loins you know to do the king's crown to do the the rack roast to do this of and it was an idea I had we and I remember I posted it and a lot of big name people like called me like dude you're such an idiot you're wasting so much time just cut the back strap out why are you leaving the rib bones on? Like you that's such a waste of time. Now you cannot turn on social media without seeing somebody eating a French out or a lollipop, or you just can't, you know, or or pictures of me holding a heart and cooking heart. And they're like, dude, you're eating heart? That's disgusting. And now these same people are like, oh, we made heart tacos tonight. And we made and for me, that's where I get excited. I'm like, okay, so I may not be the best. I may not be the coolest. I, I know I'm not the most attractive or the most fit. But if I can if I can encourage one person to try something different and to give it a go, you know, like like plucking doves. You know, how many people make fun of me for plucking dove, and now how many people are out there plucking their dove and their quail just to, for that? So much more meat that you're missing out on, or turkeys. That whole save the legs, you know, I've been an advocate of that for my entire life, yeah, and got made fun of. And now you can't go anywhere without people. And you know, it's all over. All these top out, you know, influencers. We're like, oh, look, I made this, all right? And it's like, they're sharing my recipes like crazy because it's like, oh, well, this is the guy I got it from. Turkey leg barbacoa, been doing it for years. Well, look, now you can make pizza out of it. You can make tamales, you can make... And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, I've been throwing away how much meat. And I yep. think that's the best part about like what we do is we show people that there is, again, there's no right or wrong way, but there is a better way. There's more an effective way. There's a There's a tastier way to do things. And once people get away from that fact, you know, uh, another thing you probably hear all the time, too, is like, well, my my granddad did it this way. Mm -hmm. My dad did it this way. We evolve in all of our hunting gear from our optics to our weapons to to our clothing that our grandpas and dads wouldn't even have imagined that they could have. Why are we so stuck on the way that they cooked and the way that they cleaned their game? When we evolve in every other aspect of hunting and fishing until it comes to the knife we use to skin. Well, this is the knife my grandpa used. Yeah, well, guess what? There's really cool knives that are way better and way sharper, and it's going to give a way better cut for not that expensive. Oh, well, my grandpa didn't eat organs because organs are, yeah, they're full of iron, vitamin E, vitamin Z. Oh, well, my, my grandpa said use Montreal steak seasoning. Well, your grandpa should have tried these three other ingredients to elevate, like, and I think that's, once we get past that fact that we can evolve with food, um, that hunting isn't just wrapped in bacon with jalapeno and cream cheese or thrown into a chili, um, then we can really start to look at that deer as a protein source rather than just a once-in-a-lifetime shot it, let's eat it, let's throw the head on the wall. Like, like my girls, the other day, I forgot what I made. My daughter's like, was that elk? <laughs> I go, I don't know what it was. I just grabbed a packet out of the freezer. Yeah. She goes, I think it was elk. My, my other one's like, no, I think it was antelope. I was like, girls, I don't know. Go, go read the bag. It's written on there. I just literally, it was like, oh, roast. You know, I've got a whole shelf of roasts. And they go over there, and, they, and my, young, my oldest son's like, oh, I told you it was antelope. And it was like, my daughters are tasting the differences between these meat, and they're not even blinking an eye. You know, when I make sausage or I make jerky or I make you know, snack sticks, I live in Orange County. You know, 10 minutes from Disneyland, they said I'm not living in the sticks. And my daughter takes it to her school full of rich, blonde kids and starts passing out venison jerky, and all of them are now like, Dad, I want to go shoot a deer because it tastes this. To me, that's encouragement, and that's the next step of evolution in getting our kids excited to go out. And out of those kids, I've taken out a bunch of their parents. Like this dove season, three or four of their my daughter's friends have gotten their hunting license with their dads to come out and dove hunt. Now, these are families that during the pandemic were anti-guns, anti-what I was doing,
1: mm-hmm. who are
2: now saying, hey, I don't know any – I said, don't worry about shotguns. I got 33 of them. You get your license. You get a box of ammo. I got a field. I got a gun. Let's go have some fun. And it's, it's really cool to see my daughters evolve in that area and get excited about it and want to take their friends out to do this in a society that I live in, which is very anti. Like where I live is very anti what we do as, as a culture, you know?
1: Absolutely. And that's, that's one thing that, yeah, shoot, I just keep coming back to talk to you on, and I just follow your, your social media and the things that you put out. I'm really excited about these cookbooks that that you've uh, alluded that you're putting together. And it's because of that idea that you're, you're facing truth head on to where a lot of people are saying like, this is not the way when, you know, I'm living in a a society I'm living in a, a community that embraces it and and loves that aspect of it. But at the same time, even in my aspect where I'm saying we need to step up our game in in how we're treating this animal. We need to step up our game, just like you said, from backstraps with jalapeno and cream cheese. We need to make this an everyday thing. That's a battle that, that we're having to do. But at the same time, your battle is completely different over there where people are opposed to even the idea of shooting a critter you you're hurting this critter but at the same time once once they realize like you know the critters that we're eating from a farm the 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 style of life that they are getting versus the style of life that they're getting in the wild you're getting the best of what creation can even offer out in those fields and so to be even have an impact on that i feel is just a a testament to your passion and your drive in that. I can't imagine living in Southern California where both sides of my neighbors on every every corner are already upset the fact that I have a firearm. But the fact that you've been able to use that as a tool to say, no, no, I'm not a gun nut. This is the This is the avenue that I've chosen to take in order to get to the amazing food. I'm a food nut. And this is what I'm able to glean by using these tools. I feel like that's a true testament to your testimony as you've been able yeah. to go through what no, field plate is all about. No, a hundred percent.
2: And I think that's, that's the whole goal from the very beginning was to take the food from the field to the plate in, in a respectful way, um, in a way that I was grew up and taught and, you know, I mean, even so much so like we had some deck work done on our back deck and the the termite guy comes and he opens up the garage to look to where he can get over to the deck and he sees, you know, the whole wall of Euro mounts by my gun bench and my bow setup up and my podcast area. And he goes, do you shoot all those animals? I go, yeah, I shot them all. He's like, oh, okay. You know, his eyes kind of like, oh, this, this guy is guys weird. I go, Hey, but try this. And I pull out from the the refrigerator in the garage, go try this real quick. He's like, what is this? I just try it. He takes a big bite. And he's like, oh, this is phenomenal. What is this? I go, "Oh, it's a, I go, I call it my, uh, you know, my, my antelope cigars, but I make it with like a honey barbecue snack stick, but the size of a cigar, you know, I put it in actual, you know, hog casings and he's like, I said, Oh yeah, it's this animal right here. This is the one we ate. This is the, and I start next thing, you know, his workers come, it was four Mexican dudes and they, they come in. The guy's like, Hey, um, uh, Hermes. Yeah. You, you hunt, uh, the deer. Yeah. I hunt the deer. Why? What's up? So, um, we try some of those, uh, sticks (laughs) his boss went to work and told him, "Hey, you're going go to go do this, you got to ask this dude to try these sticks." I said, "Well, I'll do one better. When you guys are doing that, I'm going to I'll make tacos." They're like, "You make those tacos?" I was like, "Yeah, I'll make some tacos." So I pull out, you know, a couple pounds of whitetail and you know, get out my tortilla press, I'm making They're like, "You're making tortillas?" And I go, "Let's freaking do this, right?" And we have dinner. This is this is last week, and we're having lunch out on this new deck that they're building for us. And these guys are just laughing. They're asking stories. Okay, well, how did you, what kind of, gu- and I think food is the great equalizer, right? If we don't eat, we die. That's a proven fact. If you're a vegan, a vegetarian, a carnivore, whatever, you don't eat, you die. That goes down the smallest organism that's living on your skin that you can't see without a microscope to the biggest of the blue whales in, in, the, in the ocean. If we do not eat, we die. Everything needs to eat to survive, right? We choose to eat what we choose to eat. And, and for me, I can sit there and say, okay, let me introduce you to my story through a plate of food, through a fork and a knife. I'm not going to bring on a gun. I'm not going to tell you about this deer. I'm going I'm to present it to a way that is comfortable, which is flavorful, which is going to have you then ask questions about the meat that you're eating, which is going to allow me to respectfully tell you about what I do. Right, I have taken out ex-vegans on their first hunts who used to give me death threats. Proven fact. I will introduce you to seven of them. Because I came at their death threats with respect and honor and food. Right, I, had the, I was talking to the Gun Owners of America guys on a turkey hunt, and they were arguing back and forth about the politics, about right, left, up, down, blue, green, red, you name it. Right, And we were sitting there in the middle of the night, and I go, you know what? You know what you guys need to do? You guys need to have a meal with those that you guys hate. You know, you and I, Nick, are are spiritual men. We're Christians. We have our Bibles. We read. We we understand the Word of God.
1: Amen. Everything
2: Jesus did was around food. He brought people together. You talk about banqueting tables, right? That's the greatest thing. The least of you will be the greatest. And you look at all these different parables that are resolved around food. You read Proverbs, it's food. You read, you read Song of Psalms, it's food. Even the lovemaking that he's doing is surrounded around food, right? Then you get to Jesus and he's doing, he's doing all of his feeding the 5,000. He's doing parables about wine. He's doing parables about food. He's doing parables about money to buy food. Food is, is that. And so I said, if you guys can sit down with people that you disagree with and have a meal with it, I have never heard anybody upset while they're eating. Before the meal and after the meal, tempers are flaring. But if you have a really good meal, you know, you talk to a lot of us who are chefs, and we tell you the greatest moment in a chef's life is silence. Because if if the room is quiet, that means mouths are full. If mouths are full, it means people are enjoying their food. If people are enjoying their food, then it's going to have amazing conversation afterward about the food that they're eating you know i can ask you what your favorite bite of food is and you'll probably oh, automatically know what this is or a smell comes over you're like oh that smells like grandma's biscuits and then this whole euphoria of that single bite of food floods your your whole entire body and so if we as wild game chefs all of us that are out there if we can tell our hunting story through a picture through a story through a video through a fork and a knife i think We're going to expand, we're going to grow, we're going to explode this industry beyond, you know, Cameron Haynes, love the guy to death, but I guarantee you, I'm going to win over a lot more people to hunting than he is by preparing them a beautiful meal than having them run up a mountain with a bow in their hands, gasping for air. And it's, it's just the way it is. Food is beautiful. I've gone to 27 different countries and everywhere I go, the first thing they do is bring out food everywhere oh try this oh and as hunters we should be doing the same thing the first thing we do with meet people oh my gosh try this oh i don't want to oh just try it you know i have a saying you have probably heard me say before if you don't like it spit it out in my hand take a bite i mean i have said that to the biggest people in our industry (laughs) i remember i brought bobcat jerky to shot show and was sitting there with a bunch of with a bunch of the, the big name people and will primos comes over and Toxie hayes is like dude you gotta try this beef this jerky jeremiah made He's like, oh, what is it? And I said, it's Bobcat. He's like, I don't eat Bobcat. I don't eat Bobcat. And I'm like, well, just eat it. If you don't like it, you can spit it in my hand. So he takes a big old bite, and I put my hand up to his mouth. And he's chewing it, and he goes, give me another stick. And I go, you got it. And we started talking, right? Food is beautiful. And I'll say it till the day I die is I think food is what's going gonna, is, is gonna to change this world. It's going to make people want to sit down and talk. It's going to make people want to open their eyes to realize that fast food is killing us. That that what we're putting into our body and our kids' body is ultimately affecting who we are as a human society and a race. And getting back to the pureness that is wild and the pureness that is not McDonald's and Taco Bell. And having our kids grow up with real flavors versus artificial flavors, I think, is is the key to where we're going to go next. And it's the key to who you and I want to be. I know it was kind of a long rant, but... Food is just my passion. Like telling stories about hunting is great, but I can—I'd rather tell you about the meals, you know,
1: and how they've changed people's perspectives over those that bite of food. Absolutely, I have. I'm literally sitting here tingling. I'm speechless. Just the way that you presented that—that this—this is what it's all about. As we come forward, I, I just—I agree with every every word that you presented there at that point, and I'm pretty sure that listeners right now, you have pulled over your vehicles. <laughs> You're literally sitting in your driveway finishing out on that rant. Because that shouldn't be that shouldn't be a soapbox that you just stood on, Jeremiah. That should be a base marble that we look upon to say, hey, this is one of the giants that is coming up in the industry that as we hear voices, as we hear messages, we're hearing people talk about food. We're hearing t- people talk about how we need to be more in tune with what we're putting into our bodies and what we're putting into our minds. And that's exactly what you are pointing to. That's a home run right there. That is truth boiling over. Thank well, you. Thank yeah, you. for that. No, it's just. I don't know. I get passionate
2: about food. I don't know if it shows, <laughs> but uh, it's just, it's, it's one of those deals, man. I'll, it's, it's food is so just part of who we are. And I think we forget about that. You know, when you ask somebody where I was doing a, an article with, I know we're, we're past our time, but I was doing an article with, uh, with, with, time magazine and we were talking about food. And one of the things I told them, I said, I don't think people actually understand where food comes from because they were talking about like, as hunters, you guys kill so many animals to eat. I was like, not really. Like, I shot 11 deer last year, probably about 100 dove, you know, a handful of ducks and geese, a cu- handful of hogs, you know, a couple antelope. Like, that's really not that in this grand scheme of it. Maybe, you know, 150 animals total have died to feed my family for the entire year. And so I started getting thinking. So what I did is I went to my church for 30 days. I had three hunting families, three non-hunting families, all families of four to five. I said, what I want you guys to do for 30 days, I want you guys to keep track of every piece of meat you guys consume. You order a pizza, tell me we ordered pepperoni pizza, count how many pepperonis are on it. They're like, really? I said, just for 30 days. I, everything from your, your bologna and your lunch meat to whatever. And They're like, okay, great. I said, and if you are, the hunting family say if you use wild game, I use wild game, this deer, blah, blah, blah. Blew people's minds when I came out with the results. Think about this: a family of four. They decide to have chicken breasts one night. Right? Mom buys six chicken breasts because Dad's going to eat two, and she wants to have one for. I like, go, okay. Well, how many chicken breasts do, does a chicken have? Two. You just killed three chickens for one dinner. Okay, you've done that three nights in a row. So three, six, nine. You've now killed nine chickens that that month, or just 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 in this week. Okay, you guys also then ordered out, you guys had hamburgers. Well, we can't really say how. Ham- one cow at least had a die for those hamburgers. Let's just say one cow. We don't know how many cows went into it. One cow had a die for you to get hamburgers at McDonald's. One cow. You go home, you then go get five ribeye steaks at the grocery store. How many ribeyes does a cow have? Okay, so let's start breaking this down per cut, per animal, per. In one month, a hunting family who eats primarily wild game Ate about 10 to 15 animals total, right? You, you're thinking about all that, okay, well, yeah, my deer's gonna get me, okay, yeah. I think about, okay, okay, we subsidized, maybe we had some chickens come in, or maybe we had this, or that non hunting family was killing like 300 animals a month based on the amount of meat that they're coming in. And just the so a non hunting family yeah. is killing 300 animals because, you know, well, they, had, they had a, a, a pork loin. They had three racks of ribs. Three racks of ribs is two whole pigs have to die. Well, yeah, but I need the other meat. It doesn't matter what, what, you ate, what you ate off that animal. Mm-hmm. For you to get three baby back racks of rib, I know for a fact that there's only one side of a rib. There's another side of a rib. They don't have four sets of ribs on there. They have different sizes. You got your St. Louis, you have your, butt. and these, these non-hunting families were like shock and odd that they had no idea. You know, I'm like, also think about this an average steak in a grocery store touches 50 to 100 things before it gets to your family's plate. That's factory trucks. That's farming trucks. That's feed gates. That's farmer's hands. That's factory workers' hands. That's machines to package cuts. You know, the truck when it goes from there to your local grocery store, the, the pallet jack that it takes it into the, the freezer, the freezer that it sits on. The Think about all those things that meat went through. You and I can tell you exactly what happened to our deer. We shot it. We gutted it, we skinned it, we cut it, we threw it in our vacuum sealer, we threw it in the freezer. Like, our hands are, are it that it touched. You know, if we include all of our things, maybe five or six things also touched it, compared to 100 things touching it for your family to eat. Like, talk about real food. Real food is getting real dirty for your for your dinner, not going to the grocery store and just picking up, you know, 17 ribeyes for your party. You just killed, what, four, there's... Two ribeyes on each cow on each side, so four, four, eight, eight, sixteen, four eight, sixteen. Four cows
1: died for that that party. Crazy to think about. It's just intense stuff. It's just reality that when you're yeah put in front of it, we've got not to say that we have the answer, but like you said, like it's it's not the way things have always been done, but we can find a way that's that's better. Jeremiah, where can where can my listeners? find more about you where can they join in the conversation with you
2: not the foot finder one
1: because
2: that was weird <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: how, how do you think i gotta make money for this this uh yes, to make money? board that i
2: have all the way back to this look at that circle back let's circle back um that's really easy from field to plate on, on everything so from field to plate.com from field to plate on instagram facebook i've got two groups i got a group and a page on facebook uh the group on facebook i think you're you're a, maybe a part of it it's geared just to food and stories uh yeah. if it's not a food and it's not a story i delete it i don't care um i don't want grip and grins if it's a grip and grin that goes along with the story there's a plate at the end share it but if it's just look at this big deer i shot I'll, I'll take it off because and it's crazy it's got in this since february when we started it's got fifteen thousand members of the group and it is very active
1: there are Food plates that go
2: up there—that I'm like, what? Where did you even yeah. think of that? Um, I love it's the questions
1: too. I love the questions. Oh, yeah. And shoot, every time that I see a question pop up, like, "Hey, I'm I'm looking at burger. Like, what should I mix in with burger? Should I mix anything with burger? What do you guys do?" And I go to put my two cents in, but I already see there's like 50 comments, which and is phenomenal. Like, you know what? It's, and it's, it's all encouraging. It. Yeah,
2: yeah, and it's all encouraging. Which I think is awesome. So you can go join that group if you want to. It's also a Facebook page, um, from field to plate, and yeah, and then I'm on Twitter and stuff, but that's like that's like an ADD gr- like group text. I I actually I hate it. Um, so go on there. I'm very active on all those platforms. So, question, comment, concern, and then working on these cookbooks should be done beginning of beginning of the or the end of this year when hunting season starts. September is the goal. Um, one of it is geared towards. It's a multi species cookbook um kind of interactive kind of tells you the basics of all of that and then i'm i've got one that's in the works it's a i can't really give too much cuz i haven't seen one like that out there and i don't want someone stealing it yet gotcha um, but it'll, it'll blood be geared towards, it. blood in the water i'm on blood in the water i'm gonna try and steal yeah, it <laughs> it'll be geared towards uh animal specifics and it's, it's one that i've been working on for about 2 years and it, pretty intensely and it's to the point where it's now that i have everything compiled it's just laying it all out and typing it all out, which is, anyone that's self-writing a book, you know it is a pain in the butt. Um, so, but again, there's no, you know, roasting game for the lazy. So and then when that's up, I'm going to do a whole kind of crowdsourcing type aspect to it. So that way you can get in on the on the ground floor and help self-publish this thing, and get it going. And uh, through that, there'll be different levels where you can get some cool hunts and gear through sponsors and come out and hunt with me. Uh, through that aspect of it so it'll be fun it'll be exciting but I'm ready for
1: a nap already just just talking about it (laughs) (laughs) well hey don't take a break you said the lazy needs to roast their game you got you can't fall in that category well hey Jeremiah hold on for just a second I'm gonna let listeners on out folks we have been presented food for thought like you would have never imagined this is full on truth coming to us face value If you're already listening to my podcast, that you have a love and a passion for food. And so I have a feeling that you were already pumping your fist. You were already saying amen to the things that Jeremiah was saying. So, folks, as we continue on from this point, when you get that animal, we want to give it the utmost respect. A, because the animal deserves that. But then B, we want to be able to present the best to our families. We're going to clean those bones. We're going to take those bones to the stockpile. We're not going to let anything go to waste just because we feel tired, just because we feel uh, like our time is being uh, know, taken from us at that point. Each of these has value. Just another meatball. It comes with so much weight because it is another meatball. So it doesn't matter if you're scraping off a rib from a, a white tailed deer or if you're going to uh, a wild hog and making sure that you're going from the inside out and not the outside in, make sure the knife that you're using is always sharp.